0: Section 13 of The Theory of the Leisure Class This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen. Third part of Chapter 6 Pecuniary Canons of Taste. Today a divergence in ideals is beginning to be apparent. The portion of the leisure class that has been consistently exempt from work and from pecuniary cares for a generation or more is now large enough to form and sustain opinion in matters of taste. Increased mobility of the members has also added to the facility with which a social confirmation can be attained within the class within this select class the exemption from thrift is a matter so commonplace as to have lost much of its utility as a basis of pecuniary decency therefore the latter-day upper-class canons of taste do not so consistently insist on an unremitting demonstration of expensiveness and a strict exclusion of the appearance of thrift so a predilection for the rustic and the natural in parks and grounds makes its appearance on these higher social and intellectual levels This predilection is in large part an outcropping of the instinct of workmanship, and it works out its results with varying degrees of consistency. It is seldom altogether unaffected, and at times it shades off into something not widely different from that make-believe of rusticity which has been referred to above. A weakness for crudely serviceable contrivances that pointedly suggest immediate and wasteless use is present even in the middle-class tastes but it is there kept well in hand under the unbroken dominance of the canon of reputable futility. Consequently, it works out in a variety of ways and means for shamming serviceability, in such contrivances as rustic fences, bridges, bowers, pavilions, and the like decorative features. An expression of this affectation of serviceability, at what is perhaps its widest divergence from the first promptings of the sense of economic beauty, is afforded by the cast-iron rustic fence and trellis, or by a circuitous drive laid across level ground. The select leisure class has outgrown the use of these pseudo-serviceable variants of pecuniary beauty, at least at some points. But the taste of the more recent accessions to the leisure class proper, and of the middle and lower classes still requires a pecuniary beauty to supplement the aesthetic beauty, even in those objects which are primarily admired for the beauty that belongs to them as natural growths. The popular taste in these matters is to be seen in the prevalent high appreciation of topiary work, and of the conventional flower beds of public grounds. Perhaps as happy an illustration as may be had of this dominance of pecuniary beauty over aesthetic beauty in middle-class tastes is seen in the reconstruction of the grounds lately occupied by the Columbian Exposition. The evidence goes to show that the requirement of reputable expensiveness is still present in good vigour, even when all ostensibly lavish display is avoided the artistic effects actually wrought in this work of reconstruction diverge somewhat widely from the effect to which the same ground would have lent itself in hands not guided by pecuniary canons of taste and even the better class of the city's population view the progress of the work with an unreserved approval which suggests that there is in this case little if any discrepancy between the tastes of the upper and the lower or middle classes of the city The sense of beauty in the population of this representative city of the advanced pecuniary culture is very chary of any departure from its great cultural principle of conspicuous waste. The love of nature, perhaps itself borrowed from a higher class code of taste, sometimes expresses itself in unexpected ways under the guidance of this canon of pecuniary beauty, and leads to results that may seem incongruous to an unreflecting beholder. The well-accepted practice of planting trees in the treeless areas of this country, for instance, has been carried over as an item of honorific expenditure into the heavily wooded areas, so that it is by no means unusual for a villager or a farmer in the wooded country to clear the land of its native trees and immediately replant saplings of certain introduced varieties about the farmyard or along the streets. In this way a forest growth of oak, elm, beech, butternut, hemlock, basswood and birch is cleared off to give room for saplings of soft maple, cottonwood, and brittle willow. It is felt that the inexpensiveness of leaving the forest trees standing would derogate from the dignity that should invest an article which is intended to serve a decorative and honorific end. The like pervading guidance of taste by pecuniary repute is traceable in the prevalent standards of beauty in animals. The part played by this canon of taste in assigning her place in the popular aesthetic scale to the cow has already been spoken of. Something to the same effect is true of the other domestic animals, so far as they are in an appreciable degree industrially useful to the community, as for instance barnyard fowl, hogs, cattle, sheep, goats, draught horses. They are of the nature of productive goods and serve a useful, often a lucrative end, Therefore, beauty is not readily imputed to them. The case is different with those domestic animals which ordinarily serve no industrial end, such as pigeons, parrots, and other cage-birds, cats, dogs, and fast horses. These commonly are items of conspicuous consumption, and are therefore honorific in their nature, and may legitimately be accounted beautiful. This class of animals are conventionally admired by the body of the upper classes, while the pecuniarily lower classes, and that select minority of the leisure class, among whom the rigorous canon that abjures thrift is in a measure obsolescent, find beauty in one class of animals as in another, without drawing a hard and fast line of pecuniary demarcation between the beautiful and the ugly. In the case of those domestic animals which are honorific and are reputed beautiful, there is a subsidiary basis of merit that should be spoken of, Apart from the birds which belong in the honorific class of domestic animals, and which owe their place in this class to their non-lucrative character alone, the animals which merit particular attention are cats, dogs, and fast horses. The cat is less reputable than the other two just named, because she is less wasteful. She may even serve a useful end. At the same time, the cat's temperament does not fit her for the honorific purpose. She lives with man on terms of equality, knows nothing of that relation of status which is the ancient basis of all distinctions of worth, honour, and repute, and she does not lend herself with facility to an invidious comparison between her owner and his neighbour. The exception to this last rule occurs in the case of such scarce and fanciful products as the Angora cat, which have some slight honorific value on the ground of expensiveness, and have therefore some special claim to beauty on pecuniary grounds. The dog has advantages in the way of uselessness as well as in special gifts of temperament. He is often spoken of, in an eminent sense, as the friend of man, and his intelligence and fidelity are praised. The meaning of this is that the dog is man's servant, and that he has the gift of an unquestioning of ab- subservience and a slave's quickness in guessing his master's mood. Coupled with these traits, which fit him well for the relation of status, and which must for the present purpose be set down as serviceable traits, The dog has some characteristics which are of a more equivocal aesthetic value. He is the filthiest of the domestic animals in his person, and the nastiest in his habits. For this he makes up in a servile, fawning attitude towards his master, and a readiness to inflict damage and discomfort on all else. The dog, then, commends himself to our favour by affording play to our propensity for mastery, and as he is also an item of expense and commonly serves no industrial purpose, he holds a well-assured place in man's regard as a thing of good repute. The dog is at the same time associated in our imagination with the chase, a meritorious employment and an expression of the honourable predatory impulse. Standing on this vantage ground, whatever beauty of form and motion and whatever commendable mental traits he may possess are conventionally acknowledged and magnified. And even those varieties of the dog which have been bred into grotesque deformity by the dog fancier are in good faith accounted beautiful by many. These varieties of dogs, and the like is true of other fancy-bred animals, are rated and graded in aesthetic value somewhat in proportion to the degree of grotesqueness and instability of the particular fashion which the deformity takes in the given case. For the purpose in hand, this differential utility on the ground of grotesqueness and instability of structure is reducible to terms of a greater scarcity and consequent expense. The commercial value of canine monstrosities, such as the prevailing styles of pet dogs both for men's and women's use, rests on their high cost of production, and their value to their owners lies chiefly in their utility as items of conspicuous consumption. Indirectly, through reflection upon their horrific expensiveness, a social worth is imputed to them, and so, by an easy substitution of words and ideas, they come to be admired and reputed beautiful. Since any attention bestowed upon these animals is in no sense gainful or useful, it is also reputable, and since the habit of giving them attention is consequently not deprecated, it may grow into an habitual attachment of great tenacity and of a most benevolent character so that in the affection bestowed on pet animals the canon of expensiveness is present more or less remotely as a norm which guides and shapes the sentiment and the selection of its object. The like is true, as will be noted presently, with respect to affection for persons also, although the manner in which the norm acts in that case is somewhat different. The case of the fast horse is much like that of the dog. He is on the whole expensive, or wasteful and useless, for the industrial purpose what productive use he may possess in the way of enhancing the well-being of the community or making the way of life easier for men takes the form of exhibitions of force and facility of motion that gratify the popular aesthetic sense this is of course a substantial serviceability the horse is not endowed with the same spiritual aptitude for servile dependence in the same measure as the dog ...but he ministers effectually to his master's impulse to convert the animate forces of the environment to his own use and discretion... ...and so express his own dominating individuality through them. The fast horse is at least potentially a race horse, of high or low degree... ...and it is as such that he is peculiarly serviceable to his owner. The utility of the fast horse lies largely in his efficiency as a means of emulation. It gratifies the owner's sense of aggression and dominance to have his own horse outstrip his neighbours... This use being not lucrative, but on the whole pretty consistently wasteful, and quite conspicuously so, it is honorific, and therefore gives the fast horse a strong presumptive position of reputability. Beyond this, the race horse proper has also a similarly non-industrial but honorific use as a gambling instrument. The fast horse, then, is aesthetically fortunate, in that the canon of pecuniary good repute legitimates a free appreciation of whatever beauty or serviceability he may possess. His pretensions have the countenance of the principle of conspicuous waste, and the backing of the predatory aptitude for dominance and emulation. The horse is, moreover, a beautiful animal, although the race-horse is so in no peculiar degree to the uninstructed taste of those persons who belong neither in the class of race-horse fanciers, nor in the class whose sense of beauty is held in abeyance by the moral constraint of the horse-fancier's award. To this untutored taste, the most beautiful horse seems to be a form which has suffered less radical alteration than the race-horse under the breeders' selective development of the animal. Still, when a writer or speaker, especially of those whose eloquence is most consistently commonplace wants an illustration of animal grace and serviceability, for rhetorical use, he habitually turns to the horse, and he commonly makes it plain before he is done that what he has in mind is the race-horse. It should be noted that in the graduated appreciation of varieties of horses and of dogs, such as one meets with among people of even moderately cultivated tastes in these matters, there is also discernible another and more direct line of influence of the leisure class canons of reputability. In this country, for instance, leisure class tastes are to some extent shaped on usages and habits which prevail, or which are apprehended to prevail, among the leisure class of Great Britain. In dogs this is true to a less extent than in horses, in horses more particularly in saddle horses which at their best serve the purpose of wasteful display simply it will hold true in a general way that a horse is more beautiful in proportion as he is more english the english leisure class being for purposes of reputable usage the upper leisure class of this country and so the exemplar for the lower grades this mimicry in the methods of the appreciation of beauty and in the forming of judgments of taste need not result in a spurious or at any rate not a hypocritical or affected predilection. The predilection is as serious and as substantial an award of taste when it rests on this basis as when it rests on any other. The difference is that this taste is, and as substantial an award of taste when it rests on this basis as when it rests on any other. The difference is that this taste is a taste for the reputably correct, not for the aesthetically true. The mimicry, it should be said, extends further than to the sense of beauty in horse flesh simply, it includes trappings and horsemanship as well, so that the correct or reputably beautiful seat or posture is also decided by English usage, as well as the equestrian gait. To show how fortuitous may sometimes be the circumstances which decide what shall be becoming and what not under the pecuniary canon of beauty, it may be noted that this English seat, and the peculiarly distressing gait which has made an awkward seat necessary, are a survival from the time when the English roads were so bad with mire and mud as to be virtually impassable, For a horse travelling at a more comfortable gait, so that a person of decorous taste in horsemanship to-day rides a punch with docked tail, in an uncomfortable posture and at a distressing gait, because the English roads during a great part of the last century were impassable for a horse travelling at a more horse-like gait, or for an animal built for moving with ease over the firm and open country to which the horse is indigenous. It is not only with respect to consumable goods, including domestic animals, that the canons of taste have been coloured by the canons of pecuniary reputability. Something to the like effect is to be said for beauty in persons. In order to avoid whatever may be matter of controversy, no weight will be given in this connection to such popular predilection as there may be for the dignified, leisurely, bearing, and poly presence that are by vulgar tradition associated with opulence in mature men. These traits are in some measure accepted as elements of personal beauty. But there are certain elements of feminine beauty, on the other hand, which come in under this head, and which are of so concrete and specific a character as to admit of itemised appreciation. It is more or less a rule that in communities which are at the stage of economic development at which women are valued by the upper class for their service, the ideal of female beauty is a robust, large-limbed woman. The ground of appreciation is the physique, While the conformation of the face is of secondary weight only. A well known instance of this ideal of the early predatory culture is that of the maidens of the Homeric poems. End of third part of chapter six.